Good afternoon, and thank you all so much for the opportunity to offer a few reflections as we celebrate the 175th anniversary of the foundation of this mission, St. Paul of Kettle Falls. For those of you who might not know me, I am Father Kevin Codd, a priest of the Diocese of Spokane. In 2008, I completed my PhD in church history after having written a dissertation on the missionary work of the Belgian clergy who came to this area in the second half of the 19th century. I can only presume that it was because of that work that I have been invited here to reflect on the missionary activity in this area in the first half of the 19th century. When Father St. Hilaire invited me to share some reflections on this important anniversary, at first I intended to offer some historical background surrounding the missions in the Pacific Northwest, the characters that were part of that story, and then draw a few lessons from those historical notes for us in our own times. I actually got busy right away on that project and had a talk pretty well prepared by Wednesday night. Fortunately, Father Kenny sent on to me the wonderful history of the Catholic Church in the Colville area written by Mr. Patrick Graham. It arrived in Thursday's mail, and even after reading just a few pages, I was well aware that his work was far better than my own. It provides to any who have read it, which I presume are most of you, a very accessible history of how it came to be that the Catholic faith was planted here in Colville area, and particularly how this mission of St. Paul at Kettle Falls came to be. I immediately felt that the words I had already prepared were not nearly as helpful as what you all have had available to you for some years. So what to do then? It came to me quite quickly Don't repeat the good work already done, for heaven's sakes. Go instead to a different kind of history, one that is more personal, but one that might shine some light on the actual experience from the inside out of those early missionaries in this area. As the old saying goes, that which is most personal is most universal. So with that in mind, on Friday morning, yesterday, as I sat down a second time at my laptop to prepare this talk for you, I began not with the questions, what happened and when did it happen and what can be learned from it, but this one. What was the actual experience like for those early missionaries to come to know the people who had lived here for millennia? We have some indications from their writings and particularly their letters, what people like the Canadian priests Francis Blanchet, Modeste Demers, and the Belgian Jesuit Peter John de Smet experienced in their first encounters with the indigenous tribes of the Northwest. Patrick Graham highlights some of those writings, and if you want to go deeper, I have with me this afternoon a first edition of Father de Smet's Voyages to the Rocky Mountains, published in Belgium in 1844. If you read French, you are welcome to browse its fragile pages carefully, though. His visit to Kettle Falls is on page 289, by the way. The maps and illustrations might be more accessible to those of you whose French didn't get past 10th grade, like my own. The historical record makes it clear that those first encounters between two vastly different cultures and those that followed were of several kinds. Early on, the first missionaries and later some of the Jesuit priests, if not many of them, who attended these missions found in the Indians people of faith and love, worthy of dignity and respect, with whom they could be friends and collaborators. Others sadly saw the native peoples as nothing more than savages, 
a word they use often in their letters. For them, the native peoples were altogether lacking in human dignity. They were of little moral quality, and they were to be treated less than children and more like dogs. Domination, abuse, and oppression were the only way they knew how to deal with these supposed savages. The consequences of that savage attitude were made manifest in horrific behavior and remain as scars on the hearts of many to this day. I have never forgotten the restrained pain in the faces of two wonderful friends in Nespilum, who told me when I was still a seminarian of the abuse they received in a Catholic mission school they attended if they dared speak a word of their own language. A horrible discipline administered by priests and nuns. As you may know, it is the desire to heal some way this pain that will bring Pope Francis to Canada later this summer. But let us dwell this evening on another kind of experience, the positive and loving encounters between missionary and native. For in these experiences, we find more insight into the missionary heart and inspiration to live the way of Jesus more fully in our own lives. Mr. Graham quotes one such missionary, Father Philip Rapagliosi, and his words should be enshrined in the hearts of every missionary and indeed every follower of Jesus Christ. Every Indian is a friend and a brother to me because God has put them in my care with all his goodness and mercy. Every Indian is a friend and a brother to me because God has put them in my care with all his goodness and mercy. With that kind of humble and loving missionary example in mind, it is worth asking ourselves, what was it really like from the inside out to come to know and love a people so different from oneself and a people nearly everyone else considered savages? What was it like personally for these people to meet one another and respect one another, even with the burden of unimaginable cultural differences? And this is where I would like to go very personal, since it is a deeply personal question, and where I hope that personal story might resonate more universally among all of us who have gathered here tonight to celebrate this anniversary. So this personal story began over 50 years ago at the end of my own freshman year at Bishop White Seminary in Spokane. I was looking a bit desperately for a summer job to help pay my tuition at Gonzaga University and had come up with nothing. It was one of those years when summer work for a kid was hard to come by, evidently. I happened to run into one of my Jesuit teachers at Gonzaga Prep and was telling him my sad story when he suggested I get in touch with Father Doyle, my former religion teacher at Prep and who I did not really like at all, at least in the classroom. That Jesuit friend assured me that even though Father Doyle might not be the best teacher of high school boys, he was nevertheless a very good, if unusual, pastor of Our Lady of Sorrow's mission on the Kalispell Reservation, just across the Pondre River from Usk and Cusick. He thought Father Doyle could use me in teaching catechism to the kids that summer, seeing as I had nothing else to do. With some foreboding, I did make the call, and Father Doyle told me he'd pick me up in front of my house the next Friday. He told me to bring some clothes for a week or two, and that was it. The next Friday, indeed, a very large, very orange Dodge station wagon rumbled into our driveway, 
and I, with a paper grocery bag of clothes, jumped in, and off we drove to Usk. I was a pretty timid little guy at the time, and Father Doyle, now garbed as a cowboy rather than a priest, wasn't much prone to small talk. I suspect he asked me if I liked riding horses and snowmobiles, for both of those activities, it would turn out, were big parts of his pastoring on the res. Once settled into his cabin up the hill from the church, lent to him by a tribal member, the kids started showing up. Andy and Lily and Rodney and a whole host of Kalispell kids let themselves in, made themselves at home, and began figuring out who was the young Suyapi that Father Doyle had just dragged in. First big question after asking my name was, can you come to the caves tomorrow to swim? Father Doyle made it clear that I was there to teach religion down at the church for a while every morning. Then we could go to the river's best swimming hole just below the famous Manresa Grotto. He might even get out his boat in the water for some water skiing, the prospect of which delighted the kids, of course. Later, Father Doyle shared a piece of venison with me for dinner, which I noted he used a large hunting knife to eat. The kids gobbled down bologna and white bread sandwiches for their dinner. I knew already that I was in a new world here. This was, I must say, the first time I had ever been outside of my own culture. I had no idea even what another culture really meant. Well, I was about to learn. The life of these kids and their families and their tribe was nothing like anything I had ever known. Their version of English was different. They had a slow way of talking, and their jokes were as dry as could be, and their laughter at their own humor was raucous. They soon had a nickname for me, as they did for everyone they liked. Kevin was transformed into caveman, and they laughed just about every time they said it. Some of them still call me caveman to this day. They had freedom to play. Rules were rare, and I couldn't figure out for a while what my role might be among them, for I didn't really know how to live without a lot of rules. One day, Father Doyle asked me to drive the orange Dodge up and down the reservation road, pick up the kids I could find, buy a bunch of bologna and Wonder Bread and Pepsi, and take them all somewhere for an afternoon of fun. And so I did. As we were heading towards the bridge, taking us off the reservation, just me driving and a bunch of kids singing camp songs in the back, I noticed I was being followed by another vehicle, its lights flashing to attract my attention. I presumed that I was in trouble for picking up kids without the permission of their parents. I pulled over. Evelyn, mom to several of the bunch, got out of her car, ambled up to mine. But instead of asking me what I was doing hauling her kids off without even talking to her, she just peered through the driver's side window, asked where we all were going, and instead of scolding me, gave me a 20 to buy snacks. And that was that. I did teach catechism in the mornings as best I could. I tried to use what was at hand. One of the best tools I found were the old stations of the cross hanging along the stamped tin walls of the church. I'd take the kids to each one and try to tell the story of Jesus' passion as best I could, using the vivid images as my primary prop. I thought it was useless until later I overheard one of the littler kids, Rodney, telling the story back to his older brother, station by station. I related that story in an article in the Inland Register not soon a- long after, 
and found a lovely letter from the Dominican sister, Sister Catherine of Chuila, telling me how moved she was by that story since she had seen those same stations on the reservation, recognized them from an earlier stay in Chuila, and was deeply saddened to find them in such an undignified state. My little story changed that sadness into joy for her, and we remained great friends until her death some years later. Sometimes those Kalispell kids taught me. The mission church was chock full of dusty artificial flowers. They were everywhere, on the altar, along every windowsill, hanging from every available nail in the wall. I thought they were ugly and unworthy of a church, any church, until Andy taught me that each one of those bouquets was from a funeral, one per dead person. Then he pointed to the one near the tabernacle and with great seriousness said, That blue one is my dad's. Suddenly, those dusty flowers had become beautiful for me, much like Sister Catherine's Stations of the Cross. And so it was, little by little, that I came to know and love their world, so different from my own, because they welcomed me into their world and taught me how to love them. Eventually, I was invited to join the local AA group for their weekly meetings. I had seen some of the effects of alcoholism on the reservation and being still young and immature. I was pretty judgmental about those folks who clearly were drinking too much. That moral clarity crumbled when I joined 10 or 12 elders and a few young adults around a couple of folding tables, each one beginning their words with, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. They would then tell the stories of their drunkenness, their sobriety, and their ongoing struggles with the affliction. I listened and I came to see each of them in the light of their frailty and the grace they found in their weakness, to borrow an important theme from St. Paul. They let me into their lives, bad and good, and I learned to love them no matter how good or how difficult their stories In those months and many more that followed, I attended wakes and funerals, baptisms, and Sunday masses galore. I met the elders who spoke only Salish and was blessed to be the godfather of a newborn, baby Yolanda. And so went my time as a junior missionary under my mentor, the cowboy priest, Jesuit Father Doyle. I had crossed a frontier I didn't even know existed. I had stepped into the world of others and been welcomed and loved and learned how, from them how to love. More than anything else in my life, that first missionary experience showed me my future. If this is what being a priest is, I am all in. I spent a second summer with the Kalispells, but also wanted to learn and experience more. So during my third college summer, I joined Father Patui in Espilum on the Colville Reservation. Father Pat was no cowboy, but he was a great pastor and an extraordinary missionary. He was available to the people, sensitive to them, listened to them, joined them in their traditional dances, and served as a healer for them. He let the people teach him how to pastor them. It was there that I met Isabel Arcasa, a true elder who served the mission church in every imaginable way and had living memories of Chief Joseph in his final years in Espilum. And there I met Chuck and Agatha, who told me stories of the old days and became great friends to me. And of course, there also I met a bunch of kids who founded Father Pat's Place 
a dog to play with, an open field, and a baseball mitt or two. As different as Father Doyle and Father Tui were in personalities, what they held in common was a love for this people with all their problems and all their blessings. A people who welcomed them into their world, their culture, their tribe, because they knew they were respected and loved, no matter their faults or failings. Some years later, it was my turn to be a missionary like these guys. In 1983, I was assigned to the parishes of Brewster and Twisp. In Brewster, it did not take long to realize that there was a major disjunction between the life of the parish, which was fully Anglo, and the reality I saw in the streets and stores of the town, which was increasingly Hispanic. I took on the task of learning Spanish. I made friends with a few Mexican people, then more and more. I was invited to backyard gatherings with plenty of carnitas, arroz, and cerveza for all, and music too. I'd drive deep into an orchard and we'd have mass amid the rows of simple cabins for the farm workers there. We initiated the first regular Spanish mass in the parish. I learned their hymns and found them simple and beautiful. We began to plan the first big fiesta de Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, then later a living Via Crucis on Good Friday, all the while putting to use what I had learned from Father Doyle and Father Tui, listening, joining, enjoying the cultural differences, and making the church a home for them too. The transition to a church that belonged to both white and Hispanic was not without pain, but it was, I believe, what Jesus and the Catholic Church asked us to do. After five years in Brewster, the opportunity to go to our diocesan mission in Guatemala presented itself and seemed like a godsend to me. I had been a priest for eight or nine years already, had learned serviceable Spanish, and was just finishing my first experience as a pastor in crossing the cultural boundary between the Anglo and Hispanic worlds. Going to Guatemala seemed like the logical pastoral extension of that experience. I had visited the mission there before, so I wasn't walking in with my eyes closed. But it's one thing to experience another culture while you're still in your own land, and quite another to find yourself completely immersed in a culture so different from your own that you feel very much like the proverbial babe in the woods, lost and with almost nothing to hold on to. I was eventually assigned to the town of Santa Catarina Ixtuacan, which is located some eight miles off the Pan American Highway, eight miles of snaking dirt road down into a deep green valley where virtually the entire population was still fully immersed in their Mayan culture. This crossing into a new world was like nothing I had ever experienced before, and it was, to say the least, very difficult for a naive young priest from Spokane. There were support systems, of course. The other priests and sisters working in the extended Spokane mission, my friend Father Tom McSherry in Santiago, Atitlan, and once in a while, a trip into Guatemala City to stay for a day or two with the Marinol priests there, just to be refreshed. I was following Father David Bronte, as pastor, who by that time had already spent many years in Ishtuakan, and he tried his best to share the missionary wisdom he had garnered over the years with me. He had learned Kiche and understood the culture as well as any non-Mayan could. In contrast, the Mayan culture, with its own social order and personal dynamics, 
remained mostly opaque to me. The trauma from a recent and bloody civil war, most of it focused on the Mayan people themselves by their own military government, was still very much in the, heart, in the hearts of everyone. And the sudden rise of evangelical churches on every corner in this once holy Catholic country caused lots of upheaval in the town itself. And not last, least of all, the strange food, the strange smells, the strange language, the strange everything, every hour, every day made me feel like I had been caught up in a spinning tornado, was being flung about without control, and was unable to understand or make sense of most of it. Yet bits and pieces did fall into place. My young sacristans became my friends as we walked long distances to bring the sacraments to distant villages. We could laugh together along the way or together enjoy the silence of the forest, and I could trust them to let me know when an earthquake was something to worry about or not. The church elder who had worked so much with Father David in translating into Quiche, the lectionary and missal for Mass, Florentino, not only played the organ, led the singing at Mass, and translated on the fly my homilies from Spanish to Quiche. This extraordinary man, this Renaissance man, also explained things to me and patiently helped me understand why this person was doing that and why that person was doing this. The children taught me Quiche words and played soccer outside my door. Most of all, the devotion of the people to their favored saints, their fervent prayers in the old church, their lovely confessions, almost none of which I actually understood, began to make sense to me in a deeper way than words. There was a deep spirituality here, deeper than in my own culture, I felt. A greater sense of God and his presence and intimacy with Jesus, Mary, and St. Catherine, their patron saint, that moved me and humbled me, for I knew I could never in a million years pray like they pray. I realized I was the learner here and they were my mentors. I was here not so much to lead them as they were here to lead me. They loved me, and I fell in love with them. But in the end, as it happens sometimes in life, it all proved to be just too much. I was burning out, and fairly fast. There was too much tornado for me to handle by myself in that place. And as much as I loved it, for my health's sake, I came home after a year. I left the people of Ishtuakan on Easter Sunday following a magnificent triduum and the joyous Easter morning mass at which I baptized a raft of little kids. The eight-mile drive out of Ishtuakan later in the day was one of the most difficult journeys of my life. Though I only stayed one year, not the six I had planned on, I went home a different person and I grieved for months afterward that I had not succeeded as a missionary. After Ishtuakan, life in the States had lost its homeness. I had become more myself among the Quiche than among my own family. And it was something I could never find the words to fully share with anyone back home. Months later, Father Bronte would return to Spokane and we had a long talk about all that had happened. And my grief poured out in tears. He alone understood. He alone could understand. And it is that kind of understanding that I prize now. For all those experiences on the Kalispell Reservation, later the Colville Reservation, even more later in Brewster, 
and most of all in Ixtuacan, Guatemala. Those experiences allow me now to understand at least a bit what those priests along the Kettle Falls and throughout the Pacific Northwest in the 1800s might have interiorly experienced as they moved out of their cultures and into that of the tribes who had lived here for thousands of years. It had to be hard, really hard, to understand not just the language but the heart of these people and vice versa. Yet the welcome they received, the trust given them, the patience with which they were mentored by the Indians most certainly have been the source, must have certainly been the source of their coming to love them, respect them, and minister faithfully among them for decades. I can understand the complexity of the experience now, how hard it was to lose one's own culture while never fully being in the other's culture, how hard it was to understand when yes meant yes and when yes meant no, but I don't want to hurt your feelings, so I'll say yes, but I mean no, how hard it was for those professional holy people to realize these children of the forest, as some patronizingly called them, really much more holy than they could ever than they could ever hope to be. And yet how beautiful it was to be welcomed in at least a bit. How lovely it was to find a friend among them. How rich it was to pray not just for them, but with them. Almost none of this is written about in their letters home or in their books. Instead, we find mostly records of adventures and numbers of children baptized. Perhaps they just didn't have the words to express truly and deeply how much they had come to love them. Maybe once in a while, tears were their words. And sadly, most of the time, tears are hard to put into a book. Those missionary experiences into other people's lands and hearts continue to be a blessing to me, even now that I'm just shy of 70. My Kalispell goddaughter Yolanda and I keep in touch and visit with one another from time to time. She continues to call me by that title, Godfather, even after all these years, and I still call her Goddaughter. I occasionally am called to the hospital to bring the sacraments to a Kalispell who is not well, old friends still. Some of the kids I knew in those days have passed away and now their bouquets of artificial flowers are on the altar in the Our Lady of Sorrows Church. I see Father Pat from Espilum once in a great while. He continues to be a loving pastor to tribes on the west side of the state. He wrote a catechism for the Indian people and I read, read bits and pieces of it still just for inspiration. When I get back to Brewster, there's always a Mexican barbecue waiting for me at the home of my first great friends there, Marcos and Maria. Others from my years there stop in and we enjoy our tacos and cerveza and pastel de tres leches as we talk about old times in Spanish. Over the years, I've been able to return to Ixtuacan fairly often and I find myself at home there still. Florentino died many years ago in a terrible accident but his grandson, Pasquale, is now finishing law school and will use his training to help his people as his grandfather had. And I'm proud that I've been able to help him get there. Javier, my young sacristan, will soon be a grandfather. He calls me from time to time and we talk about simple things. He always assures me of his family's prayer for me. They have a picture of me from those early days on the wall of their humble home. 
He called me yesterday just as I was writing this line, and he asked me to assure you that he is praying for you tonight, and he is. Finally, when I go back, one of the first people to greet me is a little boy by the name of Kevin, named after me. So there it is. The missionary impulse, at its best, is just a way of welcoming, listening, respecting, humbly being loved and loving back. This is why people used to become missionaries back in the 1800s and still do in our times, difficult as it is and as it has always been. This anniversary of the mission of St. Paul reminds us that we are all missionaries in one way or another, in our towns, our families, even our sad old world with all its daunting troubles. And so especially today, as we celebrate the 175th anniversary of the founding of the St. Paul Mission in Kettle Falls, may Father Rapagliosi's words find a place in our hearts. Every Indian is a friend and a brother to me because God has put them in my care with all his goodness and mercy. Amen.